I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the four-part Netflix true crime series, Catching Killers. Unless you're extremely cold-blooded, when you see something like that, it has some effect on you. If it doesn't, in my opinion, you're not human. Today, we're talking to one of the directors of the series, Alex Emsley. Catching Killers retells the stories of some of America's most notorious serial killers from the point of view of the people who caught them. Each film in this series recounts the investigation into one notorious killer. They include the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, and the Manhunter, Eileen Warnos. One of the more fascinating cases is covered in the two-part episode arc in True Lies. After a body is discovered in Oregon's Columbia River Gorge, a grandmother accuses her alcoholic boyfriend of being the killer. Laverne Pavlinak even provides more details, fabricated evidence, anything to get John Sosnovsky arrested. She eventually talks herself into a confession, which lands the two of them in prison. Soon after, police and reporters get letters from someone else confessing to the crime. Because of the peculiar doodles on the letters, the media dubs him the happy face killer. Do you believe that by pulling that rope tight that you caused the death of Tanya Ann Bennett. Yeah. And we're talking today with Alex Emsley, who directed the episodes True Lies, Parts 1 and 2 from Catching Killers. Alex, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, you were assigned this crime story about the happy face killer. It has some incredible twists. Were you surprised by the twists in this story, as many people who are familiar with the story are, as, as we learned about it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I think as we started to, you know, we had the sort of broad outline of the story when it when I got it. And then as you start to kind of dig into the story and read through the old police reports and really get your research going, it baffled us to be fair every sort of turn and twist and turn of the events we were going but why why did this happen why did they do this why did she say that why did he say that so it was like a real kind of voyage of discovery for us as well as we were making the film to be honest I can imagine there were a lot of challenges in making this one of the things that I kept thinking about is you have basically three primary sources plus tape can you just talk about how hard it is to, you know, tell a complete story when you have, you know, that's basically what you're working with? I think one of the one of the things that was very uh, apparent from the beginning of this project was that we wanted to tell it through the perspective of the people who were running the investigations. So that gave us a very kind of specific way of telling the story. Um, you know, if one of our primary characters wasn't in the room or they weren't there, then we had to find a way to tell that story as as it happened to them um so it kind of takes away a lot of the normal shortcuts with a true crime story where you're kind of taking the kind of you know overview god's own sort of viewpoint and you can tell the story as a sort of complete narrative with this one we always had to tell it from the point of view of the people that were involved 
Um, so that was like the primary challenge. And then the sort of secondary challenge, which is often the case, especially with historical stuff with, you know, this was sort of between 35 and 30 years ago, was that actually a lot of the protagonists, well, all three of our characters, you know, they're all in their 70s and they didn't remember a lot of stuff. So it involved us going back to primary sources, going back to police reports, going back to court records reading through i think we had you know we had one pdf that was 1500 pages long we had another pdf that was like 700 800 pages long worth of material that had to be worked through by the researchers and the story producer just to kind of try and make sense of the story and even even then we were reaching out for other people to kind of fill in blanks where we didn't know what happened at this point and that point i think in terms of purely on the research side of it i think it was definitely the most difficult project I think I've ever done, to be honest. I'm curious, too, because you have your, you know, retired detective, John Ingram. You have your former DA, uh, in this case, Jim McIntyre, and you have your journalist, Phil Stanford. There was also some tension between these three men and their roles in this case. And here you have them many years later sitting separately doing interviews. And yet that tension comes forward. From my perspective, he was the type of columnist that was more than happy to say anything that was going to get him a wider readership. We didn't get along, but you can tell him I said hello. <laughs> I think law enforcement people regarded me as a pain in the ass. Coming from the people it's coming from, I take it as a, a compliment. <laughs> Did that happen naturally during the interviews as they were telling the story? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think one of the things that we found as we went through it is this was a this was a case that stayed with all of these people and stuck with them. Um, you know, I think for for John Ingram, it was one of the two cases that he really remembered. Um, you know, throughout his whole career, with with McIntyre, you know, he tried hundreds of murder cases over his career, and it was one that really stuck with him as well. And then with with Phil Stanford, he he also came into this with a lot of anger about it. It was palpable from our early research calls with him, how how cross he was. I remember I remember one of the, our earliest calls with him. I remember he banged the table in frustration, you know, while we're, ha- we're chatting over Zoom. As a filmmaker, you're looking for that rawness of emotion, I think is really valuable in a documentary. And like you say, that, that you know, the antagonism, especially between McIntyre and Stanford, that was totally legit you know that even even now even 30 years later they were still jabbing at each other and jiving at each other and I, I found that that element of it was really both really fascinating and also just makes for great watching when you've got two antagonists going at each other uh it makes it compelling compelling viewing i liked it too it was almost like something you'd see in a scripted film you know it didn't it didn't seem real and someone was like wow this is like yeah. you can't make this up i mean i hate to be happy yeah. but you can't so the first person we meet in your story is former detective john ingram he's a burly guy wearing a leather jacket <laughs> he doesn't come off though as a hard-boiled cop who's just like anxious to put people behind bars you'll see headlines in the paper or in the media and they're always talking about the suspects when the victim's the forgotten person the police become that victim's voice what was your impression of him? Uh, John was an absolute sweetheart. Uh, he'd be like the best grandpa mm. ever. Just like really sweet, kind, warm, you know, very emotional uh, guy, um, which I think comes across in the film. 
It just kind of made me feel like I was putting my mother or my grandmother into that holding cell. And it made me feel sad. I need a break for a minute. it up boy he found the whole case was very difficult i mean just be you know because it is so strange and confusing and you're constantly being given these stories um and he felt a lot of sympathy for laverne and sort of the predicament that she found herself in i think ultimately he found the whole thing quite a difficult a difficult case to deal with and he still does you know to this day he still does so just for the listeners who, I mean, you, you had obviously not a tremendous amount of time to tell this very complicated story. So can you remind the listeners about the complications and the challenges for police in the early part of the investigation into Tanya Bennett's murder? Yeah, sure. So, OK, so uh, the murder, I mean, starts off. Where, where are we? We're in 1990 Portland. Uh, a young woman's body is found naked, no ID on the edge of the road. They, they work out who she is. Eventually her mother comes forward. And then a lady comes forward, a lady by the name of Laverne Pavlinak, and basically tells them that she heard her boyfriend, John Sosnowski, telling, talking to someone in a bar and t- telling his friend that he'd picked up this woman, Tonya Bennett, taken her out into the middle of nowhere and, and killed her. So that was the first, their first run-in with Laverne. That was the story. And kind of as the story goes on, her version of events keeps changing and she basically starts to implicate herself into the murder itself like she starts to first of all she tells them that she was actually there at the scene and she helped John dispose of the body and then she ends up telling them that she was actually the person that killed Tonya. I was confused about the fact that you know her alleged motive for putting her boyfriend into this murder was that she wanted him out of the house because he was abusive is there any sense from you? I mean, were you puzzled by how that came to be? It was. What, did you have any sense of that at all as you were researching this story? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I think that is the the biggest the biggest question is why did she do it? Why did she tell them these stories? And also, especially, why did she start to implicate herself within the story? Um, as you say, like her reason that you know what she told uh, during her trial um, because by the time of the trial came along she flipped back she said that she made it all up because John was abusive and she had to get him out of the house now there's no there was no police evidence there was no records of Sosnowski ever having abused her so he he was never arrested for abuse uh, he, he'd never been gone to trial I think he'd, he was on probation for like a DUI and everyone had their own theory to be honest, um, I think John believed her that she was, you know, under she was scared for her life. And that, she, you know, the reason that she kept up in the game is that she was scared that, that, that Sosnowski was going to get out of prison. I think McIntyre believed that as well. Phil Stanford had a whole different, a whole other theory about why, uh, why she kind of got involved with it. I mean, and we just don't, we don't know. I mean, she's, she's passed away as has John Sosnowski now. So we didn't have a chance to ask them. Uh, personally, and I think she started it potentially started it to try and get him out of the house. And then I don't know, maybe she liked the attention, maybe she liked the fact that people were taking it seriously, and she kind of got herself more and more wrapped up into it. So we meet our second narrator, 
Deputy DA Jim McIntyre, and he doesn't quite come off as warm and fuzzy um, as Ingram. Can you talk about your initial impressions of McIntyre? So, yeah, old Jim McIntyre. I mean, again, I was I was a big fan of his. I think he is quite dry. He's got a very dry sense of humour, which I really appreciated. What I also really respected about Jim was that he wasn't going to try and spin the story to make himself look better. Like he was going to tell it straight. He was going to tell it how, as it happened with no no bullshit, no messing around. Well, Jesus Christ, go get her. Get her and arrest her and put her in jail. You've left the confessed murderer sitting at home drinking coffee and tea with her daughter. Um, you don't do that. I, I really respected him for the fact that basically, you know, he's going to tell it straight and he wasn't going to he wasn't going to try and sugarcoat it. He wasn't going to try and make himself look any better. He was going to just going to tell us exactly what happened and why it happened. This was one case that he had out of, you know, five or six at the same time. And he gave it as much attention as he thought it needed. And it was basically also, as he kind of says in his introduction, he was brought in to kick, to make things happen. Like by the time he came onto it, the case had already been going for about a month and it was sort of languishing and nothing really was happening. And his whole, the whole purpose of bringing him in was to kind of act as a kick up the arse and make the case either, you know, they either had to build the case against Pavanak and Sosnowski or they had to say, we can't do it and try and find something else. And, you know, in that, in that sense, he definitely succeeded. Years after the convictions of Laverne and John, letters do show up from someone taking credit for Tanya's murder. I would like to tell my story. I have always wanted to be noticed. So I started something I don't know how to stop. On or around January 20th, 1990, I picked up Sonia Bennett and took her home. I raped her and beat her real bad. Her face was all broke up. Then I ended her life. Did everyone believe right away or did anyone believe right away that a miscarriage of justice occurred? I mean, initially, like, again, that was quite a complex part of the story because the, the, you know, the, 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 the reason that Jesperson got arrested was he killed his girlfriend at the time. But that was across the state. That was in Washington state. So he, he was tracked down by a completely different police force that knew nothing about the Tonya Bennett case. He got tracked down. He got arrested. He did eventually confess to the murder of his girlfriend. Now, while he was in prison, he wrote a letter where he to his brother where he said he'd killed another seven or eight people and he sent it off to his brother. He doesn't name names. He doesn't really say when it happened. And the police in Washington got hold of this letter. They still didn't have any idea. They didn't they they didn't connect it to Tonya Bennett. They didn't really connect, they didn't really have any way to connect it at all. This Jesperson was like a long distance trucker, like it could have been anywhere in the country. And they basically kind of gave up. They leaked this letter to the press as like a way to garner some sort of movement to make something happen. And it was only when that letter got published in the press that someone in the Multnomah County noticed it and was like, hang on a minute. Does this not sound exactly the same as, you know, the Tonya Bennett case four years ago? Because I think he said he started in 1990. You know, that was the only the moment when they started to connect the dots. And I think when McIntyre first got he got told by a state's attorney, you know, you better, you guys better take a look at this and check, check out, check this stuff out. McIntyre was like, no way, this isn't, you know, this is some fantasist. The first paragraph gave me an indication more of what he really wants, which is attention. There are both factual accuracies and inaccuracies that are contained within the letter. 
her face was all broke up, then I ended her life by pushing my fist into her throat. Factually, that doesn't fit what the autopsy report ever said. This isn't making sense. This is nonsense. I mean, he didn't want it to be true at all. They, you know, these people had already been convicted. They'd already been in prison for four years by this point. Yeah, he thought it was total nonsense and he didn't really want any part of it, to be honest. It was only when the kind of pressure kept amping up a little bit. It was only when Jesperson then became this sort of media celebrity and he started doing interviews with the paper and he did interviews with TV as well, that then the pressure again amped up a little bit more and they thought, well, we better we better take a look. But they didn't they didn't believe Jesperson for a long time. I mean, they just took it, it in a kind of ironic way. They didn't really believe Jesperson until he pointed out the spot where he'd thrown uh, Tonya Bennett's ID and they found her ID. Like they really didn't. They thought he was making it all up. Well, in your story, we meet our third narrator, journalist Phil Stanford, who looks more carefully at Jesperson than the cops do. And we actually see an interesting side of him. And you, you, you talked about your impressions of him, you know, being very angry, having a lot of this, you know, backstory where he's trying to really come back from this, you know, being put down by his paper with these st- stories about Jesperson. But he becomes, you know, that is the work of a journalist, but almost like a detective too, contacting other police departments. Can you just talk about that part of his story, just like really digging into these letters and, and doing in some ways more work than the cops did in terms of really catching this killer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, we when we were initially looking at people that we were going to include in the in the program, um, I, I fought for Stanford to get in to be involved because he was quite reluctant to be involved in the show. He did, wasn't really that interested in it. But I just thought that he was the one that showed that initiative when the letter came out to actually look at look through that letter, comb through it, go to the police sources and ask them about these cases. Like, was there someone killed in 1991 in wherever it was in California? You know, did this happen? Did that happen? And he followed up on all of those things. He called all the, all the police uh, stations involved and he discovered that, yeah, this was, you know, this was potentially real. You know, there were bodies that were found at that time and they'd all been, you know, dumped in various places and were, by the time the police had found them, were decomposed to a point where they, they couldn't be ID'd and they couldn't even really establish a uh, cause of death. So they'd been kind of left, they'd been left as unexplained deaths, essentially. They were but mostly just left as overdoses, I think is how the police wanted to write them off. And Stanford was definitely the the, the one guy who kept going on it, at it. I think he realised that, you know, this was... This could be a hell of a story. And like I was saying earlier, this could be a hell of a story that could kind of rehabilitate him within the newspaper and get him back to where he thought he should be. Um, I also think he was the kind of character that if he smells any kind of thing that, you know, smelt a little bit like the police not doing their job properly or, uh, you know, kind of officials messing up. That was his kind of story. He liked that. That tickled his fancy. That's his that's his that's his cup of tea. He wanted to go after. He was already antagonistic with like the Portland Police Department. So he felt, you know, if he could sniff out a story that would add to that, he'd go for it. (laughs) Jesperson drew these happy faces all over the pages of these letters. Um, What is your take on him doing that? (laughs) On good old Jesperson himself. I mean, it was something that. Because I've done, I've done, you know, serial killer shows before where we, you know, got very much into you trying to get into the mind of the serial killer and, you know, trying to understand the motivations. I mean, it's definitely been it's been my experience in doing true crime stuff that 
serial killers, murderers, and well, especially serial killers, they're quite banal and kind of unintelligent people in general. Quite boring, actually. I think there's there's like a, a kind of a want for a serial killer to be this kind of you know Hannibal Lecter, mad genius kind of character. When I think actually most of the times they're just sort of messed up, boring people who like killing people is kind of their best way of getting off essentially. And that, and that's what they're after. So I didn't, we didn't do a lot of kind of psychoanalyzing in this program. I mean, also because very much like our, our, our focus was on the, you know, from the police telling their stories, why he wrote, why he did the happy face. I don't know, to be honest, as a viewer, it really did surprise me that Jesperson couldn't point to where the body was dumped, but the woman who didn't do it could point exactly <laughs> to where the body was dumped. Did that surprise you? Well, I think, I mean, I, I think it just shows you how quickly people forget mm. stuff. You know, I think Laverne, Laverne worked it out in a few ways. I mean, one, you know, she, she, it pretty much told, it pretty much said in the newspaper where the body had been dumped. It was about, about a mile and a half east of, of the Vista House place. So one of the, like, the, again, the police had quite a few theories of how she'd done that. You know, one was, did she look at the odometer as they were driving her and then make them point then? She said in one of her interviews that she noticed, like, the detective's sort of body language when they were driving past the point, and that was why she stopped at that place. And then by the time Jesperson did it, maybe they were just a bit bit better with it. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't let him see the odometer they were they managed to keep their poker faces better and they'd also you know actually washed off the bit of paint on the curb so he didn't have any clues i mean if you're you're driving around that bit it's basically a long you know long windy road in the middle of nowhere so it'd be quite easy to get the wrong switch back can you just remind me about that incredible needle in the haystack moment of finding that id after this long search where it seems police are certain that they are not going to find the evidence that Jesperson is trying to point them to. Yeah, I mean, by that point, you know, after they'd done that long interview with Jesperson, McIntyre was still convinced he was a fantasist. Uh, he was convinced that Jesperson was basically just telling them what they wanted to hear just to get more attention. Um, so he came out of that interview thinking, well, we may as well have a look, but we're not going to find anything. They went to look uh, where Jesperson said he'd thrown Tonya Bennett's ID. Uh, it was off, off quite like a sort of 45 degree embankment, again, off the Columbia Road. And they searched there for a whole day. They used, they weirdly used like a bunch of children, strangely, in uh, back in the back in the day in Oregon. Wait, can you, can you just repeat <laughs> what you just said? They used children in a search to find evidence of a brutal homicide. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. yeah, they've got like a, uh, I can't remember exactly what they're called. They're, they're called like the. Like explorers. Is that what it is? Yeah, the Explorer Scouts. Okay. That's it. That's what they were called. Fun. Yeah, so they they get they get the Explorer Scouts and they've all got their little red hats on and they go off and go that went around for the whole day trying to find this ID. Didn't find anything, you know. What if they found something worse? I mean, <laughs> I can't help but think that. Hey, mom. Hey, those kids grow up fast. <laughs> Guess what I found? I found this bag of teeth today. I mean, I don't want to be grim. But that does seem like, I don't know, maybe not the best thought out children's activity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, it, it always it slightly surprised me as well. <laughs> it did surprise me. Uh, so, yeah, they, they didn't find anything. And Peterson called McIntyre said, we found nothing. And McIntyre's like, yeah, that's what I thought. I knew I knew this was going to happen. And he, they basically went on. I think McIntyre went to the district attorney and said, look, we found nothing. You know, we've got to move on. This guy's just making it all up. But something niggled in the back of Peterson's mind and he went back 
get everyone to go back there. Like I think two weeks later, they cut back all the all the vegetation. It was like blackberry bushes or something, and did another day's worth of search. And then yeah, magically out of nowhere, they found Tonya Bennett's ID, her her driving license, which you know Jesperson had basically thrown like forty feet down a bank and there's the river at the bottom of that as well because they never found her bag they never found they think they found a couple of bits of jewellery which could have been anybody's the only thing they found was that driver's licence ID so I mean it was it was an absolute needle in a haystack uh, sort of moment and without that I mean I don't think well Pavlinak and Sosnowski would still be in prison and I don't think Jasperson would have got done for it McIntyre almost seemed I don't want to say disappointed that they found the ID, but he all oh, he had this. Well, I mean, let's face it. He almost seemed like defeat, like a little bit like I, I was wrong, like disappointed to have been wrong. I never felt like I owed it to Pavlinak. In fact, this was the beginning of my growing anger at Pavlinak because every killing after Tanya Bennett may have been prevented if the investigation would have never been sidetracked in 1990. Am I am I reading that wrong? I don't think like today. I mean, like when he's reenacting that in his mind, he's like, oh, I wasn't right. That's that's how it read to me. I think more for him, because I asked him this question, like, was you disappointed? It wasn't so much that it was more like, OK, this is this is now this is what's happening mm. now. You know, now we've got to do this now. Then now we've opened up a whole new chapter of pain. Like now we've got to start the battle to try and get Pavanak and Sosnowski out, which was actually I mean, we barely touched upon it in the show, but it took them quite a long time to overturn that conviction. Again, that's kind of where my res- some of my respect for McIntyre came from was that he immediately set about, they didn't try and cover their tracks. They didn't try and like cover it up. He was like, this is what we have to do. You know, these guys are in prison and they've been wrongly put being in prison for the last four years. They need to get out. And it was a fight. It took them, I think it took them about six months before they could actually get them released. I was struck, though, by his attitude, though, in his role. Like, he didn't all of a sudden say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I have to now make up for all of this wrong that I did. He immediately admits he pivoted to anger toward Laverne Mm. because it was her confession that then potentially extended this killer's crime spree. So there yeah. was there wasn't seemingly a window of like great regret and in, introspection. Like it was just like, a, you know, anger at the crime, frustration at now Jesperson coming forward and now anger at having to do this process and then anger at Laverne. Like so that that seems to be a missing piece in his timeline. Am, am I wrong there? Yeah. About observing that? No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I asked him, you know, did you feel sorry for Laverne? I mean, he was adamantly. No, he, I did not feel so. You know, she put herself in that situation. It wasn't like, I think, what did he say? He said, This isn't a case where the state went out and said, Laverne Pavlinak, we know you killed Tanya Bennett. Laverne Pavlinak's in prison because she said she killed Tanya Bennett. John Sosnowski is in prison because he pled no contest. You know, she she was the instigator of that whole thing. And I don't know, I don't know if it would be, I don't know how different it would be now, you know, if someone told you something, if someone falsely confessed to something, Without any pressure, this is the thing. It wasn't like it wasn't like they were hunting her down or they were trying to get her to confess. I think there was pressure on Sosnowski. I think Sosnowski is very much the victim. I mean, again, depending on whether you believe or not, he was abusive to Laverne. Like this is the, the sort of the whole thing about this story. There's always these twists and turns, and it's difficult to like point the finger and say like you know McIntyre did a bad thing or 
you know, Pavanak did a bad thing or Solzhenitsky, like who, who is the innocent people and who's the, the victims in this case? I mean, obviously, other than the poor women who were actually murdered. You know, when you look at all of the, the main the main characters, they all had their weird stuff going on. Um, so John Ingram's attitude toward Laverne's false conviction was completely different. He was devastated by it. This case is always on my mind. I wish we could have went back and went over the whole damn thing again from the beginning. Perhaps it would have changed the whole scenario. But you can't go back and change things. They're done. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in some ways he felt betrayed by her. He felt betrayed by the trust that he had in her. And that, she had to, I think he still... You know, talking to him, doing that interview, you know, we spoke for two days. I think he still struggles with it because she when she told them that her final version of the story, when she told them that she was there, you know, holding the rope as as Solzhenitsky had sex with Tonya Bennett. And she was the one that, you know, held that rope and tightened it around Tonya Bennett's neck. She then told that story to her daughter in front of them. And after that, he was like, there's one thing to tell us that story. But how could then she tell that to her daughter? And how could she be making that up? How could she be lying about that? And that was that was the kind of moment for him when he was like, well, she has to be telling the truth, doesn't she? Because how how could she be doing this? You know, again, like we're we're not forcing her to tell us this story. We're not forcing her to tell this story to her daughter. Well, without putting you on the spot, I mean, how do you square that? She was willing to lie. She framed a man, but she was also a victim of a miscarriage of justice. Have you landed on a place to square that for yourself? I mean, personally speaking, I think she has to take the blame. You know, I think she was the one that came to them and she was the one that kept on upping the story. When we were doing the drama reenactments of the murder and we had like the right length of rope, you know, the length of rope that was... Uh, so it's like three and a half feet, I think. And we were trying to, trying to, you know, gently reenact what would have happened. It was a, quite a difficult, it was quite a difficult thing to actually do. And like, you know, Pavan, Pavan couldn't have been standing up with that rope. It was too short. So she would have had to have actually been on her knees. So you like start to kind of try and do these things and you think this just, this just falls apart, doesn't it? Doesn't this just not make any sense? But then, yeah. I still think she has to take the lion's share of the responsibility on it, I'm afraid. So Catching Killers is about investigators trying to snare a dangerous criminal. Would you say this case is a case in which the fish jumped into the boat? The fish desperately tried to jump into the boat and they kept like trying to throw it back out of the boat again, I think, <laughs> to follow, follow that analogy. They didn't like the look of the fish. They already had a fish that was, that was delicious and they cooked it on a barbecue and it was ready to eat. They didn't need another fish. <laughs> Alex, is there a moral to the story you're trying to tell in your chapters of Catching Killers? I don't. I don't know if there is, to be honest. Other than just the, you know, I think it's a good. It's a good study in the sort of the madness of what people will do. Uh, I mean, that's. I, well, I think I've always come away with working on a true crime thing. I think to try and find a moral, to try and find like a, you know, it's about X, Y, or Z. I. I, I think you're always going to struggle, but. I just think people are berserk and also people love being involved in the story. I think that's the other thing that really comes out of it. I think there was a lot of it was just Pavlinette wanted to build her own narrative as, and so did Jesperson. Like he wanted to build a narrative of himself as being this big, scary serial killer. He didn't like other people, 
taking that taking that away from him. Well, the episodes are called True Lies, parts one and two from the series Catching Killers. Director Alex Emsley, thank you so much for talking to me about them. I really, really enjoyed the series. It was really great. Well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed. <laughs> That is it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to director Alex Emsley from the series Catching Killers. What did you think of Catching Killers? Send your reactions to me on Twitter at Reb Lavoie. That's R-E-B-L-A-V-O-I-E. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 